Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. I bought the book Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde several months ago in preparation for this episode. And every time I passed it on my bookshelf, those two words would just drop into my consciousness and stay there for a while. Sister Outsider. They're two words that are so laden with meaning and emotion and yet they're complete opposites. A sister is one of the most intimate relationships a person can have. It's your very own family, a person who shares your DNA and shares your home. An outsider, a stranger, an intruder, a visitor, someone who is not brought into the family. And I thought about those two words, and I thought about the great human family, which really is how I was taught to see the world, to see all people as siblings. And I thought of what Audre Lorde was trying to tell me with that two-word title. And what I've really taken in, even before I started reading the book, was this sense that some of my sisters feel like outsiders in our own family. And so even before I started the book, I was deeply moved just by the title. It actually also reminds me of my reading partner, Amy Powell, when she was talking about Gloria Steinem and living the revolution and how she talked about a house, a house that's big enough for the whole family where everyone can be themselves and be loved. And I started this book with that in my mind. And I am so grateful I read this book. I am so grateful that Audre Lorde shared her powerful mind and her just incredible poetry with the world. And I felt so humbled to be able to read it and to learn from her. So this is a book I would recommend for all listeners to purchase for your home library and read it slowly and carefully. I'm really excited to discuss this book. And I'm really, really excited to discuss this book with my friend, Suzette Duncan. Welcome, Suzette. Thank you so much for being here today. It's so good to be here. I'm so excited to have this conversation too. Suzette and I met in Palo Alto, California in 2015. At that time, my two youngest kids were attending a school, an elementary school where Suzette was a teacher. And Suzette became like dear to our whole family, one of all of my kids' favorite teachers of all time. And one of our memorable moments, Suzette, was you probably remember this too, was so crazy in that that summer after that first year. And it was We were in New York City just on vacation, and we were walking along the High Line, and it was super crowded, like this massive crush of people. And you know when you're kind of like being moved along by the crowd, and suddenly I looked up, and we were like nose to nose, like about to bump into each other, and we're like, Suzette! Like my kids freaked out, and... I, that was it was wild it was wild right <laughs> like of all the people were just like what in yeah the world? and it was fun to see like it was like seeing home in this sea of strangers and yeah we just adore you Suzette we miss you and we still think about you all the time and so so excited to to connect and be able to have this conversation so can you start us off by telling us a little bit about you just where you're from and your family some things you like to do and just some things that make you who you are Awesome. I I will be happy to share. Um, And I just want to say that I think about you you all so often. Definitely one of my favorite families that I got to know as a teacher. So I'm definitely so grateful to be in this conversation with you. So about myself, 
Uh, my family is actually also from the West Indies, like Audre Lords. Um, my family is from Guyana, which is on the mainland of South America. And it's the only English-speaking country on the mainland because of uh, British colonialism. It was a British colony. There are two other Guyanas, actually, Suriname and uh, French Guyana. And I have family in Suriname, as well as Venezuela and Brazil, which are bordering countries. Uh, So my family is very rooted in Guyana, and I'm very proud of that heritage. So I also, because Guyana was a colony and kind of um, so many different people from from the Commonwealth basically came there, Our family includes people who are East Indian and African, as well as Native, and the foods of Guyana are Chinese food, chow mein is a big food in Guyana, roti and curry, which is an Indian food, and pepper pot, which is actually a Native food made from cassava, and uh, it's actually poisonous before they, like, prepared it properly, so it's really, like, a cool thing. And one of my favorite dishes, also. So... Like I said, my family's uh, origin is really important to me and has definitely colored how I see the world. I think when you said that you had grown up, like understanding that we are all sisters and siblings in this world, I definitely had that feeling just because I knew that our family included all these different types of people. And then we had come to the United States and like brought in our family. So I definitely have that sense of the world. So I also, though, had this experience as a child because I was so connected to Guyana and like in my family, it was very important to know that I was Guyanese and not American. So um, I felt very connected to Guyana and very connected to the West Indies. So two events happened when I was a child that really kind of stayed with me. But like uh, the people around me who were not didn't have the same heritage, didn't have the same connection to those things. And one of them was the Jonestown Massacre that happened in Guyana, and the other was the invasion of Grenada by the United States. I felt a lot of distress and fear about those things when I was a kid, and it really made me feel apart um, a lot of the time because none of my peers, whether white or black or you know Asian or Amer- all of my peers who were American, didn't share that experience. Well, so. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit, actually, if I can interject, I actually. I actually don't know what those events are that, that you just mentioned the Jonestown massacre, the invasion of Grenada. So I'm just going to ask you what, what happened? I'm so embarrassed that I don't know. Sure. I, I'm totally happy to share. So Jonestown, I'm sure a lot of people listening know the story of Jim Jones or have heard about uh, him, yeah, yeah. the cult leader. I mean, it wasn't, didn't start out as a cult, I think for many people, but you know, uh, I'm in the Bay Area, and and uh, Jones uh, People's Temple was a big influential part of this area in the '70s. And um, at a certain point, Jim Jones took his his church to Guyana and created Jonestown in the gun- in the jungle there. Mm. And then um, they committed mass suicide, and 900 people died oh with gosh. him in that jungle. And um, when I was a child, I think this happened in the early '80s or late '70s. I can't quite remember. But I do remember listening to the news because it was about Guyana and then being very confused about what was happening Mm. and then being very worried about the people that I knew in Guyana Mm. that I like I didn't even really know because I'd only been there as a toddler, but that I knew my family Mm. was there. I mean, 
in my house, Guyana was called home mm. simply, right? So I worried for the people in my family. Mm. Were they part of this massacre? Mm. And especially because at that time we had uh, family members coming to the United States and I was becoming aware of them, you know, and thinking about them. And so I worried about them. So that was a big thing for me. Mm. And now that I live in the Bay Area, the anniversary of that event actually was a very big thing here. And uh, that was hard for oh, me. That's terrifying. I, yeah. I can see how it would be as a child. That's so scary. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it was hard to understand. And I didn't understand the language being used. They talked about gorillas shooting in the jungle. And I was like, I know oh, there's no gorillas. Yeah. In Guyana. <laughs> and then I had to ask my yeah. parents and they explained to me it was like, you know, freedom fighters yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But totally. yeah, it was it was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot. And then um, the invasion of Grenada that uh, Audre Lorde actually writes about in the last chapter mm. of Sister Outsider, which I, I actually have never been able to finish that chapter, I'll be honest, because oh. uh, it just gets me really upset. Mm. But uh, the invasion of Grenada was the United States government during the Reagan administration decided they needed to take over that island of Grenada mm. in the West Indies. And for me, it made it very real that the United States could do that to our home, mm. to Guyana as well. And I knew that like Grenada was not a threat to the United States. There were like only like 100,000 people that lived there or something, mm. right? It's a tourist island. I think at the time they didn't even have like roads. Like it was like, you know, it was not a threat to the United States. Um, so and that also kind of lived lived in my head for a long time and made me worry again for my family. Yeah. In, uh, in, well, in South America. Already I'm just feeling like you sharing this and going into that. I mean, as you said, like Audre Lorde wrote about that in the last chapter. And I'm like scanning my memory frantically like I read the whole book like I highlighted the whole book and it just maybe goes to show that because I didn't have any like personal connection to that that wasn't one of the things that stood out and meanwhile you reading it at the same time both us both of us friends and reading it for the same project and it struck you so hard that you like almost couldn't even read it and that it, I don't know that just encapsulates like this concept of like the different life experiences that we bring to everything that color the way we perceive everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. 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 I, I couldn't have said it better. I think. Uh, and so often in our human family, right. We don't recognize that people have bring, are bringing different things. Right. Yeah. To whatever experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I kind of got us off track. So if you want to get back into oh, no, your story, okay. sorry for the tangent. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I'm happy to get back to it. My parents came to the United States in the 60s, in the late 60s. My mom was the first. My dad followed. Um, they weren't married at the time, actually. They'd known each other since they were 12 and 15. And uh, actually, in Guyana, you know, it's uh, you don't just date people, right? Your parent, mm. you, you bring your, your suitor home to meet your parents, et cetera. And there's, it's like proper courting and all of that. So my parents were involved in that. And I often heard the story of how my dad, you know, had to impress my grandfather to convince mm. him that he should be able to marry my mom yeah. when they were children, basically. Wow. I think my dad was 17 or something. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So my mom came first, my dad came afterwards. And then after they got married and had my sister and I, my grandparents actually came to the United States with their two youngest children, 
my aunt and my uncle. My uncle was only 10 at the time, actually. Hmm. So, uh, and they lived across the street from us while I was growing up. And then we all lived together in one house from the time I was like five until I was about nine. But I, I learned at my grandmother's funeral that actually my one of my other uncles, because she has eight kids or had eight kids, was got, got married that day in Guyana. And my grandmother got on a plane and moved to the United States on that day. Wow. Which just blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> just really blows my mind. But uh, like I said, we lived together in a, in a house in Queens. And then after my grandparents moved out with my aunt and uncle, actually, then I had uh, other, we had other people move into the house with us. So I had godparents living with us and other uh, cousins and other aunts and uncles. So I grew up in a house where it was almost never just me and my parents and my siblings. Mm-hmm. It was always like our big extended family. And in fact, you know, until I moved out of New York City, I lived within walking distance of like my grandparents and a lot of my aunt, my cousins. So that to me is also a really big part of who I am. Mm-hmm living in a house where I had all these other people to look up to and to educate me and to raise me. And I really, I really miss that actually. Mm -hmm. I wish that my, my own kid had had that experience. So I guess one of the most important experiences for me or shaping experiences for me was my education. And in the eighties in New York, private schools were really uh, trying to recruit more like less privileged kids, right? So my sister and I wound up going to a private school on the Museum Mile in Manhattan. But we lived out in Queens in the outer borough, right on the edge of Long Island and Queens by the airport. And our neighborhood, at the same time that we were going to this school that was like ensconced in wealth, like literally, there was a marble staircase. and. Wow. <laughs> in the school building because it was an old mansion Wow! at the same time the 80s crack was king in my neighborhood and Mm -hmm. my neighborhood had been this like happy and safe place where like we literally didn't even lock the front door when I was like very young and then I was we were it was transforming into a place where we were hearing gunshots Um, and the people were selling crack on the street. So it was really, it was a real dissonant experience going to that school and then having, living in a neighborhood where all of that was happening. Let's see, I started studying Japanese in high school, and that's another big experience for me. It's strange to say, but I think I really understood myself through, through studying. I got the chance to begin to understand myself through studying Japanese, and I actually wound up in a PhD program for Japanese literature, I left without finishing because I decided that actually I really loved teaching and that was something I learned as a TA in grad school. So I left and got a teaching credential, a KA teaching credential. And I'm really happy that I did that because it made me, it got me the, the opportunity to reflect on my own educational experience and try to bring a different one to students like myself in private schools. Mm -hmm. And then I really wanted to use what I was learning or what I knew to be kind of the strengths of of a private school education and bring it to public schools because kids in public schools don't have Mm -hmm. any of the same chances, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I actually, after leaving the school that I worked at with your kids, I uh, was working for an organization in Oakland that trains teachers at the same time 
it helps teachers get their credentials at the same time that they are the teachers of record in public schools, which is a crazy idea that they are mm-hmm. learning how to teach at the same time that they are teaching. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I was very happy to be doing that job. And that's something that I really have been wanting to do for a long time. While I was teaching in private schools in the summertime, I was actually the reason you met me in New York is because I was at this program that I worked I worked at with private school teachers from across the country, working with them to improve their teaching. So I wanted to bring all those skills to private schools. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, I got very ill mm-hmm. during that time working at that school, working with that organization. And so I had to put that work on pause, but I hope that I can get back to educating kids and teachers someday however that looks in the future. Can I throw in something here? I hope you can too, Suzette, because like I said, you made such a huge positive impact on my kids and you were so beloved at that school. And I'm just, I mean, I'm really struck by this whole story about the disparity between your home neighborhood and your school. And there's so much we could talk about. I just want to throw in too, and you and I have talked about this a little bit before, but I just, yeah. I want to say too about your illness. I've looked back on, some other episodes when I've kind of like highlighted some of our authors that have had kind of an attitude of like women, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like Mm, go out mm. and conquer and like be a girl boss. And like, (laughs) and I feel like I've, I've shared those quotes and like sometimes in in an effort to be like empowering and like, yeah, we can do it. And then I look back and think that I think sometimes I may not have been as sensitive as I wish I had been when I look at all of the different kinds of factors that people are dealing with that can complicate that and make it hard. And I was just thinking how my own my own mother has suffered with chronic pain for decades. And I just think of how she really yearns to do more, but she's just been really limited by physical struggles. And so I think about disability of all different kinds, some of which we can see and some we can't in people. And I'm just glad that you brought up your struggle with your illness and how you want to be going back to education. And I just think I need to be more aware of just the huge variety of people's abilities and circumstances at, you know, at different times in their life, even sometimes, and some things that people deal with their whole lives. So anyway. I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because I I think I never, I didn't really consider like what you're you're bringing up like I definitely was on the side of like I can do anything mm-hmm. pull myself up by my bootstraps if I want to do something I'll do it mm-hmm. and now like I really have to choose right mm-hmm. and figure out how to do those things in a way that doesn't make me sicker but it really made me this the experience of being ill the way I have been so really struggled for the last three years to even like get a diagnosis and then once getting a diagnosis to like you know start to get get well and like it's it's been really eye-opening mm-hmm. to be uh, disabled mm-hmm. in our society I've really struggled with like feeling invisible or like um just like people like you said like kind of not taking into account that my experience might be very very different mm-hmm. than their expectations but yeah, I do thank you, Amy, for like just saying that. And um, like, I, I think um, we all have like blind spots, right? And uh, sometimes it takes something unique to open our eyes to our blind spots. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah. So I, I will continue 
sharing yes, my yes, please. Uh, again, sorry. story. Sorry for the interruption again. Keep going. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate it. But uh, so I just wanted to say finally that I am married to a wonderful woman and we have a beautiful daughter who just turned 18 and is going off to college mm-hmm. soon. Her graduation is Tuesday. And, um, you know, we are all very different from each other. My wife is white. My daughter is um, half white and half Mexican and Cuban. And we also raise her with her dad. He actually lives like across, we live in the, a townhouse complex and he lives across the path from us. Um, <laughs> so uh, our daughter has been able to bounce between our houses our whole life or most of her life and has never had to choose between us, which we, we felt was important, but. It's lovely. Yeah, I just want to say that we we really, really, really love each other. And I'm always struck by when we're together in the world, people do not think we're a family. Mm-hmm. And so we get a lot of confused looks too. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I think it's because we we, we clearly adore each other. Mm-hmm. So um, I just want to say, say that I love my family very much. Mm-hmm. And I think finally I'd say, you know, I've had a lot of, wonderful experiences in my life and I've been able to meet and encounter a lot of different people and I I don't think I think actually one of the one of the difficult things about America right now I think or maybe always is that you don't get to connect with people who are very different with you often Mm. and I do think I do feel really grateful that I've had a life that's put me in a position to be friends and just connected to to a large variety of people. I think it's made my life really rich and wonderful. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that intro. <laughs> and then just really quick, I also like to ask reading partners about patriarchy oh, yeah. or like the phrase breaking down patriarchy. So what does that phrase mean to you? So I I had to think about this for a, a minute because while I was reading uh Audre Lord, like I know it's about patriarchy, but I never really centered that, I guess, hmm. while I was reading, because there's so many other things that she brings up. But I think that made it that made me think about the fact that like what she's really talking about is dehumanization, right? Like all these people who are characterized as outside of the human family, the outsiders, not the sisters, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think breaking down patriarchy has a lot to do with breaking down that that those barriers, right? And that sense that like there are people outside of our family or, you know, the room or and I think the roots of that have a lot actually to do with European colonization. Just because there had to be kind of a an intellectual choice, right? To be able to say Europe gets to take over these countries that they are lesser than, right? Mm-hmm. And they are less human than. And I think patriarchy really lives in that idea that there are some people who are humans and some people that are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think breaking down patriarchy really means uh, making sure that we understand all humans as humans mm-hmm. and having the same rights. Audre Lord talks about the mythical norm, which I made like in my head a person named Norm. <laughs> But I do think, right, because like 
that's that norm is the only one who gets to be human right uh, yeah and this, this idea um and norm is white and norm is male and norm you know has access and power and then all these other people are outside of that norm mm. and i think breaking down patriarchy means making sure everyone is part of the human family mm. and that every everything that happens isn't done in consideration of every human so, and not yeah. just norm <laughs> and not just norm exactly <laughs> I love that. oh, that's great there was not much humor in this book so i love that you just brought a little bit of humor <laughs> to the I know. yeah there are some books of philosophy etc that are funny and some that aren't yeah. <laughs> like this definitely is not a funny book no yeah. no no never laughed no. while i was reading it no um yeah. Well, and that's a good bridge, actually, because the the last step before we get into the book is just to get to know Audre Lorde better. So mm -hmm. if you could just tell us um, who she was and tell us her story a bit. Sure. So um, she was born Audre Lorde uh, in New York City on February 18th, 1934. Her dad was for, from Barbados and her mom was from Grenada. Lord's mother was of mixed ancestry um, and could pass for Spanish, which, uh, I mean, on the East Coast, Spanish is always used uh, in a way that I think now would be like Latino mm -hmm. or Hispanic, right? But um, so, and that was a big source of pride for the family. This sounds really familiar to me too, I have to admit. Her father, on the other hand, was darker than um, Audrey's mother's family, the Bellamar family liked. And uh, they only allowed the family or they only allowed them to marry because he was charming and ambitious and persistent. Um, Audrey or Audra was the youngest of the three of their three daughters and her sisters were light skinned and very and very much praised for it. Whereas Audrey, Audrey's darker skin uh, was clearly something that her mother disdained. And there was a, an aversion to that. And, uh, Audrey definitely learned that from her family. And I can say that that colorism is definitely a part of a lot of families. I mean, I, I witnessed that in my own family. Mm. I'll say that. And I don't, not necessarily the favoritism, but definitely the discussion, right? Wow. And feelings about being attractive or not attractive based on skin color. So additionally, Audrey was nearsighted to the point of being legally blind and in her book, Sister Outsider, she talks about her early memories of being shamed for her dark skin and for being visually impaired or disabled. And so she had a deep sense that there was something wrong with her. Uh, she talks about, though, learning how to read and talk at the same time and write at the age of four. Um, and if asked if she was feeling, Audrey would reply by reciting a poem. She said that she even thought in poetry. I would have liked to have met her as a kid, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Around the age of 12, she began writing her own poetry and connecting with others at her school who were considered outcasts, as she felt she was. It sounds like she was kind of like a ringleader of the outcast, mm -hmm. in a way. And a note on the spelling of her name. I didn't know this, actually, um, until this podcast but when audra was a kid she decided that she was more interested in the artistic symmetry of the e endings in the two side-by-side -side names audra lord than in the spelling 
and then in spelling her name the way her parents had intended. So she dropped the Y at the end of Audrey. Okay. And so now I keep calling her Audrey Lord, but it's Audra. Right. Is that how she? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's how I learned it. Okay. And I never learned. I always thought that was her given name too. Okay. Well, then yeah. I will change it for the rest of the episode and say Audrey, because I was saying Audrey, because I thought she just changed the spelling, but didn't change the pronunciation. And I don't know that I've heard it like very clearly pronounced to know the difference. So I will make the mental update that it's Audra. Okay. All right. So she attended Hunter College High School. If anyone from New York is listening to this, you know Hunter College High School. Um, it's a, a secondary school for intellectually gifted students. Um, I definitely wanted to go there when I was a kid in New York and graduated. She graduated in 1951. Um, and while she attended Hunter, actually, she got her uh, her first poem published in Seventeen magazine um, after her school's literary journal rejected it for being inappropriate. Um, yeah, that's that's a flex, I think. Uh, she also, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She, right. Yeah. <laughs> she also participated in poetry workshops sponsored by the um, Harlem Writers Guild, uh, but noted that she was she always felt like somewhat of an outcast from the guild because she was both crazy and queer. But they thought I would grow out of it. In 1954, she spent a year at the National University of Mexico. And when she came back to New York, she attended Hunter College and graduated in the class of 1959. She then went on to Columbia University and earned a master's degree in library science in 1961, and she was a public librarian in nearby Mount Vernon, New York. Reading this also, I have to say, like, I know all these places, right? Mm. <laughs> so I'm like, it's like hitting me in a very, in a different way, I guess. So um, uh, in 1962, Lord married attorney Edwin Rollins, who was white and gay, and she and Rollins had two children, but they divorced in 1970. She became the head librarian of the town school in New York City, where she remained until 1968. In 1968, she became the writer of residence at a college in Mississippi called Tougaloo. She led workshops with uh, young Black undergraduate students who were eager to talk about the civil rights issues of the time. Um, and because of her interactions with her students, she affirmed her desire to not only live out her life as queer, crazy and queer, but also to devote attention to uh, the formal aspects of her craft as a poet. Uh, so her poems, Cables, Cables to Rage, came out after her time and experiences at Tougaloo. She also founded a press called Kitchen Table, Women of Color Press, and that published the anthology, This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. You covered this in your podcast a little while ago. So she published many, many works of poetry and prose, uh, becoming more and more well-known in her lifetime. And her she's probably most famous for her essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. The essay is contained in the anthology of essays and speeches that we're going to discuss today, Sister Outsider, which was published in 1984. She was known... Uh, to describe herself as Black, lesbian, feminist, poet, and mother. In her novel, Zami, A New Spelling of My Name, she focuses on how her many different identities shape her life and different experiences she has because of them. She shows us that personal identity is found within the connections between 
seemingly different parts of one's life based in lived experience and one's authority to speak from this lived experience. She also spoke frequently about the need for feminism to address how all all forms of oppression are interrelated. I wish she was speaking today mm. about these things mm-hmm. as well. So while she was in Mississippi at Tougaloo, she met her partner, Francis Clayton, a white lesbian professor of, of psychology uh, who was her romantic partner until 1989. Uh, but their relationship continued for the remainder of, of Audra's life. Um, from 1981 until her death, she was the New York State Poet Laureate. Audra Lord died of breast cancer at the age of 58 on November 17, 1992 in St. Croix, where she had been living with Black feminist activist Gloria I. Joseph. In an African naming ceremony before her death, she took the name Gamba Adisa, which means warrior, she who makes her, her meaning known. What an incredible human being. Like, really. Honestly. <laughs> Honestly. She really is. And her, I mean, being the Poet Laureate of New York, too, that's so amazing and impressive and so well-deserved after reading this book. I just, like, savored a lot of her prose because she's, yeah, she's yeah. really a phenomenal poet. She has such a way of, of writing. Yeah. It's true. She really does. Zami, I want to say Zami is probably her work that has influenced me the most, mm. I'd say. When I read that book, I honestly, the way that she weaves that story of identity, it made me feel like all okay about all the things that I was. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, and that 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 book is very dear to me. Oh, so, yeah. I am going to read that book. Yeah, I'm glad to know. I'm glad for the recommendation. I'll, I would love to yeah. read it. Well, let's get into Sister Outsider. One thing I didn't know when I when I kind of picked up the book, is it like you just mentioned, it's an anthology, actually. So it's like a lot of different essays. And so that makes it, in some ways, kind of like easy to read, you can just kind of pick it up and and take these bite size themes, right? You know what I mean? And so why, as usual, we'll just take turns sharing some of the parts that struck us, stood out to us the most. So Suzette, do you want to start and just tell us some parts that you found the most striking? Sure, we could start with this quote from chapter 22. So when I read it, it resonated very deeply with me. So growing up, metabolizing hatred like daily bread, because I am black, because I am woman, because I am not black enough, because I am not some particular fantasy of woman, because I am. (sighs) Yeah, that, um, I think in chapter 22, also, she, she just like, writes this litany of experiences, right? Of kind of learning about who, how the world sees her. And uh, I've, I hate to say I saw myself in that because I don't think that's always the purpose of reading something, but I definitely understood what she was talking about because I, rem- I used to have a joke that my default emotion was anger. Mm. And it had a lot to do with the fact that like living daily life creates a lot of stress and anger for a a black person in America. I'll just say that. So this, this quote just made so much sense to me because I definitely have this feeling of having kind of to ingest hatred 
constantly. When I think about, for instance, last summer and the protests that happened and and all of that, the thing actually that really stood out to me was being constantly subjected to the image or the video of George Floyd being murdered. And like, I think, you know, there's good intention. There was good intention in kind of highlighting, this is what the police do. But there was also a lack of recognition that like black folk in America, we are constantly eating up this image of ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Being tormented and oppressed or surviving torment and oppression, right? Or surviving hatred or being hated. And it takes a toll. It's very a very heavy thing to be constantly faced with. This just makes so much sense. It is daily bread. And there's also the other part, which is that, like, she talks about also like not being sure why you're you're in this position of being despised right is it because i'm black or is it because i'm not black enough i've definitely had that experience i mean going to the school i went to uh then returning to my neighborhood you know i i got accused of being an oreo black on the outside white on the inside right Mm -hmm. so it's Mm -hmm. like i also understand that part of it where it's like I'm despised and it's like, I don't even know why, right? Mm -hmm. But it's just some part of me. And so it's like you're, there's no possibility of of becoming not despised, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like everywhere you go, there's no place for you to be loved. So I really understand what she's saying here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just like, this also just makes me think about the fact that like, I, I know I, I brought up being disabled at the beginning of this. And I also do have a very strong sense that I've kind of used up a lot of my life energy <laughs> uh, fighting anger or feeding yeah. anger or trying to survive hatred, right? And, um, you know, that psychologically and physically takes a toll and robs you of the energy to do the work to like free yourself Mm. as well. Mm. That, that really breaks my heart. (laughs) One thing that, that this quote and then your response to the quote reminds me of is there's a part of Isabel Wilkerson's book cast the origins of our discontents. She talks about black anger and she talks about how white people really, love and and praise black forgiveness and they're so uncomfortable mm. with black anger and mm. they just like don't have tolerance for and and there's a lot of you know obviously tone policing that goes on like you can say yes. feelings but not like that because now that's alienating me and she says that white people just we really love the story about when a black person will say like oh it's okay and and that it's about absolving white people of our collective guilt and that places the burden of forgiveness like back onto African-American shoulders. So not only have they had all these horrible things happen, but then white people are still going like, but you forgive me. Right. And like placing that burden back on that and, or on them. And right. It reminds me there, if I can read this one quote by Audrey or Audre Lorde, she says, 
quote, black women are expected to use our anger only in the service of other people's salvation or learning. But that time is over. My anger has meant pain to me, but it has also meant survival. And before I give it up, I'm going to be sure that there is something at least as powerful to replace it on the road to clarity, end quote. So did you did that resonate for you, Suzette, that part of the book? It definitely did. And I think actually, it makes me think about uh, several things. One is that what Wilkinson says about Black forgiveness um, and the wish to be absolved of guilt. Mm -hmm. It makes me think about when I was teaching um, sixth graders and we had created an anti-bias curriculum or bias awareness curriculum. And we, because we wanted our sixth graders to kind of hold and like grapple with, right, bias and also how they might react and practice, right? Do you hear someone saying something that strikes you as like, biased in some way, racist or homophobic, et cetera. How, how do you speak? What do you say? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Anyway. But what I learned in that process was that my white students um, got stuck in a place of guilt. Mm -hmm. Right. But what I realized in those, like that meeting place with my students is that guilt also came from a place of like not knowing what else to do. Mm -hmm. Because I think in a very real way, right, our culture teaches them that racism or dealing with race is not their problem mm -hmm. and is not something for them, right? The only reaction they can have is guilt. And so one thing I did as a teacher was I taught them about white people who had been anti-racist heroes mm -hmm. so that they could see what it looks like, right? Mm -hmm. Because I also think they didn't have models for what their own action could look like. Mm -hmm. They only had models of their own guilt. So that's something that just comes up for me as I listen to this. But also I know that in that process of getting to that place of that thinking for my students, right, I had to swallow so much of my anger in those conversations mm. uh, with students or adults, right, or their parents. And what I know about that is also that holding that anger is so damaging to me and so toxic and that right? If I release it, it can also be destructive. So actually, you know, the next quote, I think is very connected to this first one about metabolizing anger or hatred as daily bread. And the next quote is actually, I think it's at the end of this, the chapter that that comes from, but um, the one that it resonated with me was I was not meant to be alone and without you who understand. And, um, you know, that first quote kind of definitely made me think about the ways in which um, we, as Black people, kind of eat up hatred uh, constantly. But then also the fact that, like, the people that we, uh, and this quote kind of uh, reasserts that the people that we are looking to for refuge, right, other Black people, also don't necessarily offer that. Mm. And to me, I think actually, I, I, I've had a lot of experience being suspect because I don't conform to what people think 
like a black girl who goes to Amherst College, which is where I went to school, would look like, right? Mm. And what I know that to be stemming from is actually oppression and patriarchy and racism. Because like a lot of that judgment, for instance, had to do with my hair. Mm. And like I... Uh, when I was eight, or until I was eight, I had natural hair. My mom would just braid it for me, right? I had pigtails, et cetera, right? Lots of barrettes, mm. <laughs> that kind of thing, and ribbons in my hair, right? So, and then when I started going to, at school on the Museum Mile, I, I distinctly remember my mom took me to a hairdresser and got my hair straightened mm. with like a chemical re- relaxer, right? And then throughout my experience of being at that school, like my hair was such a thing, right? It had to be straightened. It had to be like, if it was growing out and getting kinky again, I would path and we couldn't go and get it chemically straightened, right? My mom would use a straightening comb, a hot comb, basically, to straighten my hair, which is like my ears got burned so many times by this hot comb. And like, you know, we... At one point, we had a hot comb that we just like get heat up by putting it on the stove. No right? way. Yes. Oh but gosh. then, yeah, I was grateful when we got a hot comb that you could plug in. Yeah. Because yeah. at least the temperature was like, you know, consistent. Mm-hmm. But like, so that, right. And like uh, the smell of my hair burning in my nose, I know that smell so well. Wow. Right. And so at a certain point, I was like, I am not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. Of course I said that of because course, I'm like, right. And like, I mean, when you really think about it, like, and it's such, such an accepted part of black life, right? Mm-hmm. You can't walk around with your hair, or at least it was when I was a kid. Now there's a lot more acceptance of people just wearing their hair naturally. And you see that a lot with like the guys in the NBA. I personally, I think a lot of their hair looks ridiculous, but that's fine. <laughs> but like, <laughs> But that's just like me being an old person, (laughs) right? But like they're doing dreads with their hair, all sorts of things, but it's like more accepted. I definitely can find more products to use in my natural hair now than at any other point in my life. Hmm. But like, right, it's, it was so accepted though, that it was inappropriate for me to just show up with my natural hair somewhere. Wow. Inappropriate, right? Yeah. To this day, kids get suspended from school and like people lose jobs over their black hair. So it was so accepted, but so accepted by other black people. Right. So I definitely experienced the policing of other black folk on my the way I chose to express myself Mm -hmm. or dress. Right. Wear my hair. Um, And what I most wanted. Right was for them to be with me, Mm. but I got rejection. Uh, I got being alone, but I wanted to be mis. I wanted to be understood. Mm. Right. And like, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the origin of that is clearly, clearly right. Oppression Mm -hmm. and racism and patriarchy. Cause it's like, who, who am I trying to emulate in straightening my hair? I'm not trying to be more black. Yeah. I'm not trying to be more myself. Right. And like this image of like beauty that black people are trying to aspire to is not us. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that wouldn't be happening without this environment. Yeah. Maybe it would be happening in a different way, 
but it wouldn't be happening in that way. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I was, I was just going to ask, is that, do you think that your mom, so it, it was kind of your mom's choice to have you start straightening your hair. Was that because of her internalized like anxiety that she wanted you to be accepted in that new environment and that meant having oh. those white beauty standards and so oh definitely definitely did you fight her on it did you tell her you didn't want to straighten it or and what did she say if you did no I didn't I didn't oh. really think it was a choice at okay. that time okay when I was when I got as I got older like I definitely remember in high school when I had a horrible jerry curl which was another like you know <laughs> another Wait, what's, awful what's a jerry curl Oh, a jerry curl. So jerry curl is, um, it's like one of the craziest things, actually. Uh, the actress Taraji P. Henson, who also happens to also be a hairdresser or was a hairdresser, uh-huh. talked about this in an interview once. But basically, you straightened your hair, you wrapped it in curls. Mm. It was a perm, basically. Wow. But you straightened your hair to perm it a different way. Oh, and then you had to like... Where, put all this moisture into it because it was like you know frying damaged yeah. right <laughs> exactly yeah. so it was like yeah so it was a look for a while and and Taraji P Henson is like we have curls right. why were we yeah. doing this right wow why were we doing this and it takes so, so long it sounds like too like oh every hours day. hours yeah, yeah. I mean, that was like you did it like once every six weeks or something. Oh, okay, right? got it. Was oh, it's hours of time. Yeah. Oh, man, that must have been <laughs> so hard. And I've, I've learned a little bit more. I mean, again, I just feel embarrassed for all this stuff I didn't know. But it was actually my daughters, my older daughters, Lindsay and Lucy, like not not that long ago, like within the last five or six years or something that they were talking about, like, you know, like, you know, that that hair is a big deal for for black people and that I was like really and I just I'm just so ignorant but I'm so glad that you shared that like I've had black friends but we just never talked about it and they never I mean I guess why would they right why would they tell me about what their beauty routine was or what or the and and then all of the emotion that went into it and I I think I couldn't (laughs) yeah I mean you know like I would say my best friend from third grade who's still a great friend of mine Mm -hmm. right is a white woman We've no we right. We've known each other since we were eight. Mm-hmm. She should know, but she doesn't, yeah. or she didn't, right? And it's like, I I remember like my friend at my sister. I don't remember. I remember having a discussion, and someone said, "Have you ever talked to talked to her about what you do with your hair?" And I was like, "Why would I do that?" Yeah. And then, and I think it was really like, it's kind of like exposing something, right? Mm like a family secret almost, although it's not that serious, but it felt that way. Mm-hmm. And then I don't think I knew I would know how to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I, at that, you know, at 12 or 15 or eight, I don't think I knew how to talk about it. I was uncomfortable, right? I was like, I don't think, why are we, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Right. But I don't think I knew how to talk about it mm-hmm. in a way that I could have communicated to my friend about it. Because she probably would have been like, why would you do that? Why don't you just wear the, your hair the way it is, right? right? Like, that would be the logical next question. I don't think I would have had an answer for that. Right. Well, like you just pointed out at the beginning, you said, like, the, that beauty standard comes from a colonial, <laughs> like, a beauty standard where everybody's supposed to look 
like norm right like ever or yeah exactly or norma norma yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. right and so there's like i know if you're tell me if you think this is right my thought is i mean your mom is is making you do that because she's trying to make sure that you can assimilate so that you'll be well liked and that you'll be successful in the world that you're living in and so to admit like yes that oh i'm doing this and it's it's not natural but i'm doing this to assimilate it almost defeats the purpose because it is it's it is i don't want to say a facade but it's like it it calls the game what it is and like everybody's yeah. pretending and so you can't yeah. not pretend i don't right know, and if and if i didn't pretend or if 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 i talked about it in trying to talk about it in more clear terms could we have talked about it without being like well this is just about me looking white right Right. And then like, what does that mean for my friend who is white that right. I'm talking about this with? Right. So, yeah, I think I mean, I think it kind of goes back to the fact that like in the United States, we don't have a vocabulary or practice even right. Talking mm-hmm. about racial difference. Mm-hmm. We just pretend it doesn't exist. Right. Exactly. So I'm thinking, too, like that's just another it's a, a manifestation of white privilege, because I definitely as a kid, too, if my black friends would have said, do you know that I have to do this and it hurts my scalp and it burns my ears? Like you said, I would have been like, what? Stop doing it. But that's easy for me to say, because I'm not going to get suspended from school if I stop doing something to my hair. And I don't even know that that can happen to you. You know what I mean? Like I could right. unwittingly right, exactly. endanger my friend by saying, just don't do that anymore, because I don't realize what that would mean right. for you. Right. Because like to this day, right, like by a black beauty standard, braiding your hair is appropriate. Mm -hmm. Right. That is the way that we care for our hair and we make it look beautiful. Mm -hmm. But black children get suspended from school for showing up in braids. Oh, my gosh. Like, I mean, it's just so essential. It's just so essential. We cannot braid our hair, which is literally how we take care of our hair Mm -hmm. it becomes a debatable practice right Mm -hmm. because those braids are outside of the norm because essentially those braids are outside of what is human Mm -hmm. so this this is kind of leading into one of the the next quotes that i wanted to share actually about what, what you're saying about like sharing those differences honestly and talking about like here's Mm. what my life actually looks like I was thinking about that phrase that you shared at the beginning where she says I was not meant to be alone and without you who understands Mm. and she develops that point in this quote as well she says quote difference must not merely be tolerated but seen as a fund of necessary polarities between which our creativity can spark like a dialectic only then does the necessity for interdependency become unthreatening. End quote. Mm. And I just love that encouragement of like being who we are honestly and not hiding ourselves. And instead of like, it's always kind of scary to like share a way that you're different with somebody else. I think humans are programmed to like not want to stand out and not want to be different, but right, so it right. maybe requires some training to say like, yeah, tell me, tell me all about how you're different. And I'm going to be vulnerable and tell you these things that you might not know, or you might not like, I don't know, but like to just open up and, and really communicate. And, and that requires, of course, like being good listeners to each other too. And just saying like, what does that mean to you 
whether it's hair or other things that we're experiencing. And I, I, if I can really quick, I'll just throw in one more quote that she says, she says, quote, as women, we have been taught either to ignore our differences or to view them as causes for separation and suspicion rather than as forces for change. Without community, there is no liberation. Only the most vulnerable and temporary armistice between an individual and her oppression. But community Mm. must not mean a shedding of our differences, nor the pathetic pretense that these differences do not exist. This actually makes me think about, because she says something about, if you don't express your differences, right, they can be used against you. They can be weaponized against you. And um, I don't remember exactly how she puts it, but like, so, and she kind of says, but if I express it, then it becomes like a tool for me, Mm. right? It doesn't become a a thing that is used against me because it has a tool for me and my liberation. And I really think that that's an important thing for people to, to see or to consider because like, yeah. Right now, and like, if we look at like our kind of like, if we, if I can say cancel culture, although I, I have doubts about that, but like the ways in which, I mean, my wife is experiencing this at work right now, like the, the, the things that you can express is narrowing in the mm. public space right now, let's mm-hmm. say that. And it doesn't help us, right? It harms us mm. because it keeps pushing people out of our circle of allies or friends right Mm -hmm. or people that we can relate to or see ourselves in it creates more enemies out of other people than friends and i mean it's so dangerous Mm. whereas like if we were simply able to celebrate what makes us different right and to say wow you see this thing differently than i do i wonder what i can learn right from the way that you see the world like it's immediately expansive and so it's interesting to me that like kind of um, a lot of discourse around race and culture is about erasing difference, right? Mm. And it doesn't, and and that is what is kind of like alternately making it harder for us to like embrace everyone. Yeah. So, yeah. What a great point. So, yeah, I think this actually connects to the next quote that I thought that I picked out, which is, we are not responsible for our own oppression, but we are responsible for our own liberation. And like I said, it's like, um, it totally connects to her idea that if you use what's inside of you, right, to um, to free yourself, basically, that it can't be used as a cudgel against you uh, by people who don't agree with you. Um, it also makes me think about what's important about a distinction between liberation or personal liberation and personal individualism. Because I think in our world that we live in right now, those things are conflated. And that might be part of why we see like expressing personal difference as dangerous in our context, right? Because it's like um, individualism is more about like shoving the other guy out of the way than embracing them. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, that the liberation that um, um, 
Audre Lorde is talking about is like, it's not just personal liberation, but it's like, if I can be free myself, then I can help somebody else be free. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a really different thing. Yeah. And giving other, are you saying to like, I'm just picturing again, like this analogy of the house. And if we're all a family, like giving everybody space, like you don't need to be just like me to live in my house and be in my family with me. I mean, actually, I'm literally seeing your family in my yeah, mind no. where you're like, yeah. we look like each other. We And people <laughs> are like, wait, you're a family? And you're like, yes. And we all really love each other. And it can be, people are so scared of difference. I don't know, actually, why we're so scared of difference. We think yeah. we can't love each other if we're not the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's it's quite, it's kind of baffling almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, we brought up my family and, and this really makes me think of a story from, uh, from, from our daughter's childhood. Mm-hmm. I wasn't there because I, I became a part of the family when she was five, but she was three at the time. My wife was out with her at FAO Schwartz in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were looking in the windows and, uh, my wife had been trying to raise our daughter, like without, you know, princesses and pink and all that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And she was like, she's going to be a liberated woman. <laughs> so I'm not going to. Right. So they look in the window and Trix, our daughter says, uh, Mama, we don't like princesses, do we? Oh. They're princesses in the window. Mm. And my wife is looking in the window and she has this realization that she's been saying stuff about princesses because she doesn't want our daughter to think, you know, that's all that girls can be. Mm. But actually, our daughter likes princesses. Mm. So she had to make a choice in that moment. Mm-hmm. And she said, do you like princesses? And our daughter said, yes, mama. So they went in the store and bought a princess. Oh, what a good mom. Uh, my, I yes, my wife is a wonderful mother. Mm. I think, and but to me, like that story to me says so says that thing, right? Like in our house, you get to be who you are, mm. right? And we support you to be who you are. I love that, and I want the world to be like that too. Me too. One thing that I was struck by in that quote where you said. We are not responsible for our own oppression, but we are responsible for our own liberation. And that that's obviously something that she's directing t- to a Black audience, right? Or mm-hmm. even maybe a gay audience, too. Yeah, or women. I mean, it or could women. be that's any true. of those w- audiences, yeah. That's true. I, gu- I guess I read it as being more along racial lines, and I was approaching it like... I mean, I do think she was talking about Ma- Malcolm X at that moment. Yes, so, okay, that's yeah. why I thought that. Yeah. Well, I just felt like, I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit. We talked about white guilt a minute ago, but I, I just have to say as a person who it, I'm white and descended from Europeans and I, just growing up and like gradually realizing just the horrors that white Europeans have inflicted on like basically every other group of people throughout time, but just especially in our country on African people via the slave trade and then Jim Crow. And it's just... It's so horrifying. And I have a brain, I guess, that's, or just my personality is I'm really, I'm a, I'm an empath, I guess. I just, Mm -hmm. human cruelty in any form is excruciating for me. And I just feel this particular anguish as I've learned about the suffering that 
a group that I'm affiliated with has caused, right? And it just, mm-hmm. ugh. and and also learning how I continue to benefit. Like I have benefited from those unjust systems the my whole life, and it's just a long way of saying, I guess, that I do have this guilt, the kind of this collective guilt. And I thought that for me, as in that position and and a straight person too. I was I was thinking that a useful phrase would be that I'm not responsible for the systems that I inherited, but I am responsible for what I do with them. Mm. And I thought she was, this was a, a quote that she specifically addressed, white guilt. She says, quote, this is her talking, quote, my anger is a response to racist attitudes and to the actions and presumptions that arise out of these attitudes. If your dealings with other women reflect those attitudes, then my anger and your attendant fears are spotlights that can be used for growth in the same way I have used learning to express anger for my growth, but for corrective surgery, not guilt. Guilt and defensiveness are bricks in a wall against which we all flounder. They serve none of our futures. Mm. End quote. And I thought, that was so powerful to me because you were just describing how your students kind of got stuck in guilt and you were like, okay, here's how to be an anti-racist. And it's been really a neat, even though the year has been so horrible, I think that one really neat thing that's come from it is a lot of my white friends have been reading and me too. I mean, just educating ourselves and reading books that we might not have read otherwise about how to be better and how to not just get stuck in guilt and then do nothing, which, as she says, serves none of our futures. So I wanted to read a couple of passages from this next part, if that's okay, Suzette, and then just ask you what you thought or if this resonates with you at all. There's Absolutely. I just felt like, I, again, I was approaching this like, how can I be better being a white woman and being a straight woman. And so I want to read a couple of these things where she talks about white women and she, she talks about, well, I'll just read in her words, quote, the woman's studies program of a Southern university invites a black woman to read following a week long forum on black and white women. What has this week given to you? I ask the most vocal white woman says, I think I've gotten a lot. I feel black women really understand me a lot better now. They have a better idea of where I'm coming from, end quote. I'm just going to read these and let them stand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another one that she's, and, and of course, she's a scholar, right? She's, she's visiting universities. She's doing lectures. She's doing speeches. And so she's having like all of these interactions in the early 80s with kind of like consciousness raising and they're talking about race and gender more. So she's just sharing some of these experiences. Here's another one. Quote, White women are beginning to examine their relationships to black women, yet often I hear them wanting only to deal with little colored children across the roads of childhood, the beloved nursemaid, the occasional second grade classmate, those tender memories of what was once mysterious and intriguing or neutral. You avoid the childhood assumptions formed by the raucous laughter at Rastus and Alfalfa, which I'm assuming I think was probably a racist depiction in a tv show like in the media i think it was little rascals alfalfa was in little rascals Ah, got it okay well that was before our time but i can kind of get the gist yeah Um, (laughs) but just the racist things that people just laughed at in the in the media right 
Mm-hmm. And then she resumes by saying, the acute message of your mommy's handkerchief spread upon the park bench because I had just been sitting there. Mm. End quote. Oh, that just like guts me. Mm. But these are things she talks about, right? She talks about remembering one of her very earliest memories is being on the mm. subway and a white woman not wanting to touch her yep. and her thinking like, what's wrong with me? Why doesn't she want to touch me? And then it just dawns on her. Yeah. Ugh. And then, okay, one more. She says, that's the daily bread, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'll share one more and then um, okay. see what you think about this quote. I wheel my two-year-old daughter in a shopping cart through the supermarket in Eastchester, and a little white girl riding past in her mother's cart calls out excitedly, Oh, look, Mommy, a baby maid. And your mother shushes you, but she does not correct you. And so 15 years later, at a conference on racism, you can still find that story humorous. But I hear your laughter is full of terror and dis-ease. End quote. So that section to me, I just like let it sink in. It is really, it's so hard to like realize like what, what people go through daily. Like you said, that daily bread that my black friends my whole life have been eating and I didn't even know. But what did you think of this, this section, Suzette? What were your thoughts? Yeah. Reading that, or I listened to it, but listening to that section, I remember just being like, ugh, every, like, I think that was the sound I made every, at the Mm -hmm. end of every story. And, um, I mean, you know, it's like, um, something that struck me listening to this book was just how much things had been, have remained similar to what she's talking about you know, because she's talking about experiences in the 80s and 90s here. Mm-hmm. And I could probably pick stories from the aughts, right, that would give you similar feelings. Mm-hmm. And um, so, like, one thing as I was listening to that chapter was, like, you know, it might not be exactly the same or as out, as outlandish, I'd say, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. But still, like, I I also like the feeling in me was like oh yeah I remember that time right so like that like immediately that's what comes to mind as I listen to those things like <sighs> boy this is still happening right mm-hmm. and like it makes me go back to guilt there's a great documentary called um I'm not a racist am I and um it's about a group of high school students in New York City, eight high school students from all around New York City who get together to talk about race. Mm-hmm. And they are from Bed-Stuy, like the poorest black kids and the wealthiest white kids coming together in this program. But they go through a year of this and there's tension between these these groups, actually, that never gets spoken until the very end. And the facilitator before this like kind of blows up she says guilt is not an action and that like really has stuck with me and I really am thinking about it as I'm listening to these stories because in a sense I feel like that that description of her laughter as terror and Mm dis-ease there's guilt in those stories right Mm -hmm or a feeling of guilt, but there's also seeing without looking. Right. Mm. And so there's like, 
I've there's I feel like this is what I this is what I presume or how I feel in encounters with people who are like expressing like things that I find racist and you know dispiriting and they're like ha 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 you know that was funny or could you believe that happened it's kind of like I feel like they felt guilty about it so they mm. feel like they've done their work oh interesting oh. right and because I really do think like our discussion of race is like racism is the problem of people receiving it, not the people who benefit from it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's the message everyone gets. Right. So racism is my problem, not your problem, mm -hmm. which is in ludicrous. Right. But right. still that's the way it's coded. And so like feeling guilty then becomes enough of an action. There's a sense in which these women see something, but they don't see it. They, mm -hmm. They're not really looking mm -hmm. for what the meaning of it, of these things are or, you know, the impact, right? They're not looking in the face of their Black colleagues as they're mm -hmm. sharing these stories. But if they did, they'd see, they'd understand. So I also think, and I also think there's something in our culture that allows us to see a lot of things, but not really take them in. Mm. So that's what comes to mind for me here. Mm -hmm. Well, there's even, okay, one last thing is I remember in that section too, there's literally like what you just said, a woman who they had done a conference on racism and this woman was like saying, well, no women of color showed up to our conference on racism. So I guess we won't do one again. And Audre Lorde's like, exactly what you said, I guess is just but whose problem is racism? Like, it's not the women of color's problem or burden or even ability to change the system. Like, it's the white women. So the conferences on ra racism, well, white men and women, right? Like, that's the, the burden of changing that needs to be with white people, not with people of color. Is yes, yes. There's that passage. Yes. Too. It's so, it's like remarkable to me. Like the discourse, like squarely puts it in the hands of people who have no power to make a difference. Mm. It's it's remarkable, yeah. literally. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, tell me some more sections that stood out to you, Suzette. Okay, so actually, I think this section lets us talk a lot about a lot of things, and it's a quote. She says, "The white fathers told us, I think, therefore, I am." The black mother within each of us, the poet, whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. Mm. And like this actually takes me in a lot of directions. One of them is how like this or, or split, I guess, between rationality and feeling, I guess, that's like so prominent Mm -hmm. in the way that we conceptualize ourselves as human beings. And um, this comes to mind for me because, like, I feel like so much of what Audre Lorde does is, like, challenge us to integrate those things together mm -hmm. in her work. Like, Zami, to me, is a great example of that, actually, because it's poetry, it's history, it's biography, it's fiction, it's everything. And it allows it like it's a book that allows you to to understand something in a way that you've never understood it before, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's because it doesn't um, respect the boundaries between the rational and the and the like uh, sublime. 
let's say, right? Or the like artistic and the like intellectual. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, like even in her work, what she's saying is like, we are we are not being served by thinking of these things as being so distant from each other. Like we need them to interact. It also makes me think a lot about code switching. It makes me think about the fact that like uh, in education, right? Families of color often want their kids to be educated in the language of power. Okay? Mm-hmm. So because we need that language of power to survive, mm-hmm. right? But also, hopefully, I mean, I don't think this is always the aim, but it is what also will allow us to change, right, power. Mm-hmm. We can engage with, right, we can engage with, like, dismantling or disrupting the, you know, uh, ideas about governance or, like, civil society unless we can speak the same language, as the people who are fighting against. So it also makes me think about the fact that like we, as people, as outsiders, we need to know the language of the inside. Mm. And we also need to hold on to our own language. Mm. And actually that's very much the power of being an outsider in a society, right? That you can code switch, that you can speak in multiple ways and to multiple different types of people. Right. That's part of the power of it. Um, And I think that's also something that she brings up here. But I also see at this cultural moment kind of this desire to reject everything that's like European. Right. Mm. Or that comes out of Europe. So, like, for instance, um, Howard University is actually getting rid of their classics department, which Mm. I think is an insane thing. Insane. Right. Mm. Because, like, we need to know that. If we are going to disrupt what is happening, you know, if we if if black folk want to engage with what the world as it is, then we need access to that. Mm. Right. And so, yes, we need to question. Right. I think therefore I am. We need to question the master's tools, but we can't get rid of them entirely. Mm. That that's. Uh, some of the things this makes me think about. Yeah. Yeah. So that section is, I think, so important too, Suzette. And like you mentioned earlier, I think one of her, one of Lord's most famous quotes that she's known for is that quote where she says, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And I just want to read this quote where that comes from. She says, Quote, those of us who stand outside the circle of this society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to stand alone, unpopular and sometimes reviled and how to make common cause with those others identified as outside the structure in order to define and seek a world in which we can all flourish. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. 
And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. Mm. End quote. I mean, that's just so rich, right? That whole paragraph. But Yeah. That last sentence is so important, right? Mm-hmm. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. Mm-hmm. So we need a broader vision. Like there's going to be a bigger house and you will still have a place in it, right? Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. And and like you're saying too, well, one other point that I heard you saying where she's like the master's tools are not going to build or are not going to be able to deconstruct this house. But you're saying like, but don't throw away all the hammers. <laughs> like, and, and she says that too, right? Like we, yeah, you need to know how to speak the language of the people who are inside the house. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think uh, it kind of relates to the way that she, like the the quotes that we brought up at the beginning about like, or what you said about being sister, both sister and outsider. Mm. It's like, she, I think, like, I've never really thought about that title so deeply, but she really is kind of saying like, you're both inside and outside, you're both, right, Mm -hmm. in group and out group, and like, that's not a bad thing. That's actually your source of strength and power. So there are two other quotes that I found in the, in the book that I want to talk about. And um, the first one is uh, this. I have come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood that the speaking profits me beyond any other effect. I'm standing here as a black lesbian poet and the meaning of all that weighs down, weighs upon the fact that I am still alive and might not have been. And I like, uh, I think this, you know, this is kind of like uh, going back to uh, some of the things that she's speaking about earlier, right? Kind of like not having your, um, your your yourself used against you right mm-hmm. um because you've spoken it um but this really also like i think this is the thing that has always drawn me to um audre lord um why zombie is such an important book to me as well and it's that she is saying like proclaim to the world who you are right it can only help you <laughs> Um, and, you know, it's such a, um, counter narrative to, I think what we often get taught. Right. Mm. And maybe especially as women, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Totally. Like the fact that like, Oh, put your face on. Right. Like yeah, totally. <laughs> all that. So, yes. so I think it's so powerful. And to me, it also makes me think about, um, a quote from, um, the gospel of Thomas, which I think I was like, kind of like, I remember reading Zami and reading the gospel of Thomas at the same time. And like, this struck me at the same time. Um, and it's a Gnostic gospel is one of the ones on the dead sea scrolls that was mm-hmm. found basically. Right. So it was chosen. It wasn't chosen to be in the, in the Bible, which is interesting mm-hmm. because the gospel of Thomas says something like this. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, 
that's exactly what she's talking about. You have to express who you are. So, um, you know, I was re I remember reading that gospel. I was reading Zami and like this quote reminds me of that because like, it also was the thing that made me finally come out to my family. Hmm. Um, and it like it just intersected in a moment in my life when, um, my, my father had been sick for a very, very long time and passed away. And then my uncle had been sick for a very short time and died from AIDS. And none of us knew he was HIV positive. And there was this sense that like, he might've been gay, he might've been bisexual, but that was something that we were never going to talk about. Right. And so I'd lost my dad. I lost my uncle. And I was reading this. And at that moment I was like, I don't want to die and not be known. So I I like felt like this compelled to come out to my family because I I just um like there was something about what she was saying in Zami something about this like that you know having it sa- said so clearly that like if I don't just say what's inside of me it might it will destroy me right mm. will hurt me so um this this quote for all those reasons kind of resonates with me but also i think it's just like one of the like basic truths about our humanness mm. that seems to get lost a lot right that mm. like we like being true to ourselves and not like in that individualistic way right but in that like i want to liberate myself so other people can be liberated around me mm. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that, Suzette. Did it feel, did it go okay when you came out to your family and did it feel liberating? It, yes and no. Um, so I wrote, I was in, I was living uh, across the country at the time. I wrote a letter to my mom and, uh, you know, my mom actually initially, you know, it was kind of like, what did I do wrong kind of thing? And I was like very oh. disappointed with that. But um, mm. my mom became like very supportive especially I had a partner whose parents were very not supportive. Uh, and she, you know, they weren't even going to come to her medical school graduation. And it was like breaking her heart. And my mom, my mom really showed up for us right mm. in that moment. And, uh, and really showed that like, it was um, that she could embrace, you know, mm. everyone. Um, so, you know, it took a little time. But at the same time, she wouldn't let me come out to my grandmother. Oh. And too hard that, on her or what? What was her reason? Well, that's what she thought. I mean, I, I was of the opinion that my grandmother would be fine with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I did eventually come out to my grandmother, but it was like years later. Um, and that was really hard for me because I, like, I had made a decision, right? And I was mm-hmm. 100% okay with sharing all of myself. But... It was, you know, I had to negotiate that with my mom. So, mm. so I didn't get to quite do it all the way. That's so, <laughs> that's so hard. I, so I, I'm thinking of, so I, a past episode that I did with my friend Raina, where she, she read Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female by Frances Beale. And we talked a little bit about, so my friend Raina is Black and she grew up in a, in a, very all white, like really all white world. And she talked about Mm. like getting migraines and having stomach ulcers and having 
Oh, a lot of physical. Yeah. I'm just thinking of you too, and just like like you said, like ingesting hatred and then keeping who you really are, having to keep it inside of you and straighten your hair. And I'm just thinking about like the physical as well as the emotional and mental toll that that must take on a person to just be like to just have to process that. I'm just feeling. Yeah, um, I mean, it's I. It's heavy. And I, I, um, you know, I've, I've actually, I've had, I've struggled with depression for most of my life. I definitely was a dystymic child, which means that I was like just low grade depressed, mm. uh, from about the age of like eight, eight, nine, ten, something like that. Mm. And like, I, I, I very much feel like it is connected to, I mean, like obviously genetics has plenty to do with it but I also feel like being in a world where I couldn't be myself most of the time Mm -hmm. uh definitely contributed to that feeling because it's like it took me so much of my it has taken me so much of my life to be okay with myself Mm -hmm. like in very uh simple ways Mm -hmm. and to know myself in very simple ways like, I'll say this. I think I'm a pretty smart person. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's um, an understatement. <laughs> but, Amy, I swear to you, I did not think I was a pretty smart person hmm. until I was about 30. What? Really? Really. Oh. And it had a lot to do. I, I like, no doubt it had a lot to do with, like, like I went to an amazing school, like I said, with the marble staircase, and I learned a lot in that school. And one of the things I learned was that I wasn't that great. Mm. Right? And like, but actually, I think I'm pretty smart now. Mm-hmm. But I carried that with myself, carried that with me for so long. I think a lot about the impacts that like patriarchy and racism and sexism have had on just like like the advancement of human knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. And the human family. Like how many geniuses just like didn't do anything mm-hmm. or you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we've lost so much because we decided like a whole bunch of people weren't important. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I think about that a lot. Absolutely. I think one of the next parts that you were going to share, Suzette, kind of ties into the same kind of the same theme of of keeping, you know, thoughts and feelings and and true identity to yourself, because sometimes it can just be so hard or almost impossible to communicate. Yeah. Yeah, this quote, I think, really, it just like paints the picture so, so, so well. Um, And this was early on in the book. Uh, She wrote, frequently, when speaking to men and white women, I am reminded how difficult and time consuming it is to have to reinvent the pencil every time you want to send a message. Mm. It just like, it's so illustrates, right? Like imagine chopping down the tree, right? <laughs> like whittling the wood, <laughs> like that, like so much effort just to be able to communicate something. And sometimes the commu- the thing you need to communicate is like very straightforward. It makes me think also about how so much is hidden. And I think actually part of the effort that's described in this quote is also that 
there's so much implied in what's trying to be communicated that it, that is also the weight of what's that is also what makes it hard it makes me think about also kids who show up at school and like you know got yelled at by their parent that morning right yeah. or didn't have enough to eat or whatever and they get into a fight on the schoolyard that kid can't tell me all of that stuff mm-hmm. but all of that is implied in what happens and needs to be part of our communication but anyway it made me think of this Iverson thing that happened so many years ago. And it's been in the news because I think it's like the 20th anniversary of this press conference where he, Island Iverson is a basketball player. He played for the 76ers. He was well known because he was, I mean, I guess like popularly people saw him as a thug, but I think he just was like, I'm just going to be who I am. Mm. I wear baggy pants and like, you know, uh, sports jerseys. I'm not going to show up in a suit because that's not who I am, right? Mm-hmm. And he wore braids, etc. So he hadn't uh, shown up for practice uh, during this playoff run. He got penalized by his team, and he's at this press conference, and they kept on asking him about this, and he just kept on saying practice. He just kept on repeating the word practice. He's like, practice, practice. Why are you asking me about practice? I will I will die on the court for my team and all you can ask me about is practice mm-hmm. and he like just couldn't say anything more than that but in fact he had been like working so hard for his team and killing him like killing himself for his team pouring his heart and soul into his work because his his one of his best friends had been gunned down at the beginning of the season and had died mm-hmm. and so like he put all of his energy into his work and then he was getting questioned about like not showing up for a practice. Mm-hmm. Right. But no one, no one had ever asked him in that seven month period about his friend, about the investigation, about how he was feeling. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I I've watched that press conference so many times. Cause it's like, you can tell there's more that needs to be said there. Mm. and that nobody is asking the right question and also that he doesn't have the words because actually this is important i think it's not just that you have to reinvent the pencil to send the message but it's like you have to ask if it's okay to send the message as well Mm. i think that's true like because i i mean and i'm putting myself in this but i i have had this experience of like there was something so weighty and big to me and I just need someone to like inquire. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it doesn't happen. Hmm. And I think that, you know, so it's like that quote, just like really like, it just kind of blew my mind when I read it. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like, it communicates a lot of a feeling of being in a world where it's like, uh, yeah, you just can't, there's no way for you to speak what you need to, mm-hmm. even if you are the most eloquent person. And I think also that's something that comes to mind with to me about Audre Lorde. She is eloquent and, you know, she can express so much. But I kind of almost think that she had to find a way to do that mm-hmm. because there was so much that needed to be expressed and there was it was so hard to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, she was like a vessel, right? Because she, I mean, like you said in her bio, she she like learned to think and speak and write 
at the age of four in poetry, right? So yeah. she's like one of those gifted people who could like really move the needle and move the conversation forward because she was like a prophet, right? Like one of those people who comes yeah. to earth and makes a big difference. But as I'm hearing you talk about Alan Iverson and about the, I mean, this whole concept, right? I'm just thinking again of like the context. This has been a theme with our conversation today that I've taken away is like, just realizing there's so much context to people's lives that we don't know about. And, and you mentioned when we were talking before, like about how some black people just say like, I I just can't talk about race to white people. I just can't. It's just, just exhausting. Right. I mean, I think there's even a book title that says why I'm, why I'm done talking to white people about race. Yes. Yes. Like I just can't, it's just too tiring. So I have to admit something to you, Suzette, this is, yeah, I, I'm just going to be vulnerable. And this is I'm not proud of this, but I'm going to say it out loud in case it's useful to someone. I, I was just going to say, like, OK, well, as a white person, like, what questions should I be asking? Or like, how can mm-hmm. I think uh, how should I be t- thinking about race? Or what can you tell listeners like white listeners about how they can interact with their black friends? And then I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm just putting the burden back. I'm doing it. Like I'm putting the burden on you to tell me how to ask the questions and tell me how to, like, how should I act? And I, 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 so I feel like I, I was, it, it makes me think of this quote. I mean, just the fact that I just did that, like putting it on you to tell mm. me what to do instead of me, like figuring it out, like figure out the questions and how to be a good friend. Anyway, I was thinking of the, of, I I thank you for sharing that though. Oh, I'm sorry. Like I, (laughs) no, I mean, I really thank you for sharing that though. Like, I think it's meaningful to say like, I was about to do this and I'm interrupting myself Yeah, because I think it says, Oh, you're like, uh, so much of what, uh, Audre Lorde says is like, I've been doing my work. Are you doing your work? Yeah. Right. Right. That's well, you're doing your work in that moment. And I appreciate you sharing that work. Oh, thanks. Thanks for saying yeah. that. And I guess maybe is this, am I to understand this correctly, Suzette? I feel like because you and I are friends that I can, there's a difference between me saying, Suzette, what do you need in this moment? Like person to person, that's different from me saying, Suzette, what do black people need? Or like, what should white people do? What should white people do to help their black friends or whatever? Right? Like, yeah, I do want listeners to know that, like, I I think that's always a nice thing to ask is like, how can I help you right now? I can see you're having a hard time or like, your face is, is clouded with sorrow. Like, what's going on with you? Like, that's different. It's, it's just like, what I was going to ask you was, what message do you have for my white listeners about how they can help black friends? And I'm like, what are, what is wrong with you, Amy? You know better than that. But (laughs) anyway, that's the, that's the one to not do. And it, and this has been talked about a lot in the media lately. And I just thought of um, this tweet by Roxanne Gay last year Mm. where she said something like, she's like, I'm seeing a lot of look to your black friends posts right now and she's like your black friends are busy your black friends have jobs <laughs> yes like, we do <laughs> please don't ask them to educate you again like read yeah. books read books look up articles like do some self-education anyway we've talked about this already but like it's 
So if any listeners are, are, I mean, that's a lovely motivation, I think, to think like, how can I be a better ally? So the the first step is to read some books about it. I think absolutely. And I think if you're asking yourself that question, then don't ask somebody to do it for you, right? Yeah. You've got to do it yourself, I think. But I mean, I also want to offer some grace here, I think, which is that in our culture, I think we have learned a lot to like... um, uh, outsource, right? Yeah. Our emotional work, our labor in that way, right? And that's something to be unlearned, right? Mm-hmm. That's something that you're you are un- actively unlearning at this moment. And I think it's important, right? To um, I'm not saying like, uh, yes, black people, you need to be gracious with your white friends. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying though is that like, um. Or, I mean, everyone should be gracious, but I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that, like, um, we have this idea that adults are done learning or have mm. have finished their work, right? And mm. I think it's important for us to remember that we are all still learning, right? Mm. And that if someone is genuinely attempting to learn, right, then, because I've seen this a lot, right, that, like, uh, people's reaction is like, well, I'm not going to do that work for you, which is legitimate and fine, but then encourage them because mm-hmm. I don't want it to be a slam in the door, right? I want it to be like a, hey, I'm not going to do that work for you, but I invite you to do that work yourself. Here's some titles for you. <laughs> like, right? Mm-hmm. Because like, I don't want uh, I don't want the slam in the door and I don't actually want a replication also of because um, this is what I worry about uh, kind of like a, I, wor- I don't want it to be like um, well you haven't done the work so we don't have anything to say to each other yet mm. right I right like um I don't need to carry water for you and I don't need to do the work for you, but I can walk alongside you even as you're struggling and making mistakes. Right. Like I don't have to reject you. And I see that a lot. Um, and I don't want that to be what people are doing to each other either. So. Well, that's incredibly kind of you. <laughs> Make me choke up a little bit. <laughs> I mean, again, it's just, you don't, I guess you don't owe it to anyone to have that compassion and grace and kindness, but it is beautiful. And I appreciate it. I mean, as your friend to be received that way when I'm still making mistakes means a lot to me. I just think we have to make room for mistakes. I think we too often and too much, you know, I I mean, you, you brought it up too, like making the house big enough for everyone. Mm. And, um, you know, one way we don't, one way we close off the door is when we say, well, you, you, you messed up. Mm. So you must be a bad guy. Mm. We don't have anything. We can't do anything together now. Mm. No, that's not, I mean, that's not how I roll. Yeah. So well, I know that about you. And I think you're wonderful. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> okay. Well, that brings us to the end. So as we wrap up, is there like one idea or a couple ideas that stand out to you most from the book? Yeah, I'd say one thing is like I forgot how much this how much Audre Lorde has influenced me. Like mm. there was this time in the 90s where I was like, "Oh, yes, Audre." And I was like soaking up all these things. 
And it's almost like she just left all these seeds in my head that have been like sprouting for years so it was really nice to come back to the to her writing and see like the fruits in myself so that's been really wonderful that's a great takeaway for me and then the other thing is I think um I always look I always try to think of like what are the themes in a thing that I'm reading and I really like the themes here are like self-liberation has to happen in order for like big political liberation to happen whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. And I think a self-liberation is necessary so that we can have like difficult, the difficult conversations and grapple with big ideas that need to happen for us to make sure that everyone is included in the 10th of human. Mm. And then I think the other thing is I realized that like the isms that she talks about, racism, sexism, homophobia, which is not an ism, but you know, like they're all um, other other words for dehumanization, and that's what she's fighting against, um, or telling or helping us to like think against in this book. And I think that's really really important. I've really, I've really been kind of sitting with an idea in my head for the last few months, or maybe longer. I mean, with the pandemic happening. I'm just like, what if we just really, like, really, really, really thought of every human as a human? Like, mm. every human is entitled to exactly the same thing. Like, we don't think that way now. Uh, on a government level, on a global level. But what if every human actually had the same rights of every, as every other human? And I really do feel like that's what she's asking us to think about. Mm. And then... um the last thing is, it's really worthwhile to share your internal world with others. We assume that we know what will happen if we do that. But I think what she's saying is like, you have no idea and it can expand your world. So mm. yeah. those are my big takeaways. Awesome. It's beautiful. Thanks, Suzette. I think I want to share just one takeaway and it's just a quote from her and I'm just going to let her kind of have the final word and in her own words, she says, quote, what are the words you do not yet have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them still in silence? Perhaps for some of you here today, I am the face of one of your fears because I am woman, because I am black, because I am lesbian, because I am myself a black woman warrior poet doing my work come to ask you, are you doing yours? End quote. So Suzette, thank you again. Thank you so, so much for being here. I learned so much from you and this was just an incredibly memorable, enriching experience to talk about this book, to, to read it at the same time and share our notes and then talk about it today. I'm just I'll, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much for being As here. As am I. I'm so grateful. And I hope we get to talk more soon. Yes, also. we do. We've uncovered so many things we need to talk about. Yeah, actually. we do. So we it's time for a lunch or a walk now that vaccines have happened and we yeah. can get together. So let's do it. Yeah, Thanks, yeah for sure. You're welcome.
Well, and thank you to listeners too. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for listening. Next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be reading Naomi Wolf's book, The Beauty Myth, How Images of Beauty Are Used Against Women. It was published in 1990, and this is a topic that has come up over and over and over again on this podcast from Mary Wollstonecraft talking about women being taught that beauty is their scepter, scepter being, of course, a symbol of power. So beauty is the only power they're allowed to have in a world run by men all the way through today's episode, even with our discussion of hair and how white beauty standards continue to harm people of color. So beauty is something we all think about all the time. And Naomi Wolf made some groundbreaking observations in this book. So if you can read The Beauty Myth, How Images of Beauty Are Used Against Women. But even if you can't read the book, that's okay. Just join us next time to listen to the conversation next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 